Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. In this episode, I'll talk about a time when I realized what it meant to be what I now call a Terranaut. To do that, I have to go back to the mid-1990s when I was working at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. I was a newly minted PhD graduate working for a small Canadian company called Neptech Design Group. I was so newly minted that I had handed in my thesis to the registrar's office on my way out of town to drive to Houston with my wife, our two cats, and all of our earthly belongings. I was going to Houston to work on a project that was known as the Space Vision System, or SVS, and it would eventually be used to help build the International Space Station. At the time, though, in 1993, the plan for what became ISS was not even really fully formed. The basic idea of an international space station had barely survived the budget cycle in both the United States and Canada barely three years previously, and then only with the promise of significant changes to that original plan, which had been called Space Station Freedom. The new station, christened imaginatively Space Station Alpha, was in the planning stages. It would, with Russian participation, eventually become the ISS. The plan for Space Station Alpha was to build the station using the space shuttle. The main components of the space station would be loaded into the shuttle payload bay, launched to orbit, and installed using the Canadarm, or SRMS, Shuttle Remote Manipulator System, as NASA called it. The NASA group that was responsible for the Canadarm, the robotic section of the Mission Operation Directorate at JSC, was studying the plan, and they had a concern. The task of mating the space station modules on orbit was a bit daunting. The modules were very large, 16 feet or 5 feet in diameter, and the tolerances of the docking interfaces that would connect them was quite small. It was about the equivalent of parking a Greyhound bus in a parking stall with only 5 centimeters or 2 inches of clearance on either side. Only it was worse than that because the astronauts who were parking those buses were not on the bus. They were sitting in a room looking at a television camera that could only see the front left fender of the bus. The robotic section believed that the job could not be done without some way of providing an accurate guidance cue to the crew when they were operating the arm. They believed that they might have a way of providing that cue based on the results of Canadian astronaut Steve McLean's flight on SDS-52, where he had done an experiment that featured the space vision system. The SVS worked on the principle that if you put targets consisting of black and white dots on the big space station elements, a camera could pick the targets out of the background, track them, and use their positions in the camera image to determine where the space station element was and how it was oriented in space. The robotic section thought that they could use this idea to solve the problem of building the space station by using SVS to generate guidance cues during those operations. They asked the Canadian Space Agency and NEPTEC to help them prove this concept. And so, 
Naptec needed someone to move to Houston and work with the robotics section, and that someone was going to be me. In the end, I would spend about a year and a half living in Houston and working at JSC. I would learn a great deal about the profession of flying spacecraft. I would learn how to plan and support space shuttle operations in the various simulators and in mission control. And I would also learn how to work aboard the space shuttle to integrate and test our equipment. I would become what I now refer to as a Terranaut. I would learn how to go to space without ever leaving the ground. The SVS program would go on for another 15 years after I came back to Canada, and a version of the system would eventually be used to assemble the ISS. Proof of that fact is visible every time you see those little black dots sprinkled all over the surface of the space station. They are there because of the work we did in the robotics section at JSC in 1993 and 1994. But I did not know all of that when I arrived at JSC. My job to that point had consisted of developing new algorithms for the SVS to use to transform two-dimensional positions of the images of a bunch of target dots into three-dimensional positions and orientations of objects in space. I was proud of that work. Although it really had nothing to do with my graduate research, it made use of the skills that I had developed as a graduate student, and I was looking forward to proving that the system would work in space. I now know that the list of things I did not know was dauntingly long. Luckily, I did not know how long, or I probably never would have signed up for the job. I got a small window into the scale of my ignorance on my very first afternoon at JSC. I attended a meeting with my new colleagues in the robotic section who wanted to talk about SVS and how to use it to assist in some planned space station assembly tasks. They were concerned that the expected accuracy of the SVS solution might not be good enough to reliably complete those tasks. This, I thought, was my moment to shine. I announced that this was exactly the problem I had been working on for months. I had developed a new algorithm that could use inputs from multiple cameras, which significantly improved the old algorithm that only used one camera. And since there were two cameras that could see this operation, I was confident that this new algorithm would solve the problem. Then, the robotics section folks patiently explained to me that they needed all of these operations to be at least single fault tolerant to camera failures, meaning that they had to be able to do the operation even if one of the cameras failed, which was why there were two cameras that could see the operation in the first place. So thanks very much, but what else have you got? Well, the fact of the matter is that I had nothing except a new appreciation for a fundamental truth that every young graduate learns when they get out into the real world. And that is that while solving problems when you get to define all of the constraints can be a challenge, solving the problems the way the real world constrains them is a lot harder. We would eventually prove that the space vision system could produce guidance cues that were accurate enough to be used to assemble the space station, but it would take about another five years and a lot of analysis and a lot of testing, both on the ground and on the space shuttle on orbit. In the end, we came to realize that the accuracy we needed was about one part in 10,000, and to get to that accuracy, we had to characterize every part of the system very carefully, especially the space shuttle cameras. 
We also quickly figured out that the camera's performance in space was different than it was on the ground in certain cases. So we would need to test the cameras on the shuttle while it was on orbit. And that's how I came to be sitting in the mission control center with a rack full of equipment intently watching a video of black dots. You see, in order to test the cameras, we had gotten permission and had mounted target dots in the shuttle payload bay where they could be seen by the aft payload bulkhead cameras. Once the targets were mounted, we would go to the mission control center during a shuttle mission, and when the crew on orbit was asleep, we would aim the cameras at the targets. Then we could record video, and we could pass the video through the SVS unit on the ground and record the results. And that way... We could vary all of the parameters of the camera, including zoom, pan, tilt, and about three others that I have since forgotten, and we could determine the impact that they would have on the accuracy of the SVS solution. So during these flights, my job consisted of sitting in the robotic section back room at Mission Control and spending literally hours recording video of black dots on a white background, and then taking and recording measurements with the SVS unit. And then changing a single camera parameter and doing it all again and again and again and again. It was exactly the kind of job that gets assigned to junior engineers and scientists the world over. It was repetitive and it could be mind-numbingly boring. But it was also essential that it be done carefully because it had to be done exactly the same way every time to preserve the integrity of the data. So, in a very real sense, though, it was an utterly unexceptional thing for a recently minted graduate to be doing as part of a large engineering project. Until. Well, to understand the until, you have to understand a bit more about how commanding the space shuttle cameras from the ground worked. To move the cameras, I had to talk to another flight controller who was called Inco. Through his console, he could issue commands to the cameras. But the way the command link worked, he could only issue discrete commands. So to tilt the camera a few degrees, he had to issue a tilt command. And then when the camera was pointed in almost the right place, he would issue the stop command. Only sometimes the camera didn't stop. Which is what happened one night in the middle of testing when I asked Inko to tilt the camera up. As the camera was tilting, I went back to my equipment and got ready for another data take. But when I looked up, the camera was not looking at black dots. Instead, it was pointed up over the sill of the shuttle's payload bay. And instead of four black dots, I was presented with the sight of the Earth from orbit with the Atlantic coast of North America rotating slowly out of sight beneath the space shuttle. I was transfixed. In that moment, I realized that the camera I had been using effectively as a piece of lab equipment was in fact not on the planet with me. It was instead in orbit around the planet, looking back at me. And the thought stopped me cold. I sat and I stared, lost in the view. Eventually, I heard Inko in my ear saying, SVS, SVS, what do you want to do now? And I said, Inko, tilt down, stop. And I went back to my equipment because I had dozens more tests to run before the crew woke up. But I will always remember that moment as one of the times that defines what it means for me to be a Terranaut. Because even though those tests were not very exciting, 
the fact of the matter was that I was working in space, even though I hadn't left the ground. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>